Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, in his dictionary, Samuel Johnson does not define either Saxon, Angle, or Anglo-Saxon. But Noah Webster, in his final 1828 American Dictionary, defines it as adjective, pertaining to the Saxons, who settled in England, or the English Saxons. Something had happened in between the two of them, and it wasn't just the American Revolution. The term Anglo-Saxon indeed has a rich and complicated history, very much so at the present in 2023. And so does the perception of the peoples to which it refers, or does it actually refer to them? With me to discuss the history of the definition and the ideology of the term is Rory Naismith, Professor of Medieval English History at the University of Cambridge, fellow of Corpus Christi College, which makes him perhaps the best possible person to talk about this. He's the author of numerous books, such as Citadel of the Saxons, The Rise of Early London. He was last on the podcast talking about medieval money in episode 328. Rory, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me, Al. Glad to be here. So let's talk about the, as you put it, the SRP, the Standard Received Perception. Um, what do people, what do you think people are generally mean when they're talking about Anglo-Saxons? Part of the problem, I think, is that people mean different things and have different ideas of what the Anglo-Saxons are, depending on exactly where you go. And also that's changed a lot over time. Broadly speaking, where I am in Cambridge in the UK, in the Department of Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic, people think of the Anglo-Saxons in much the same historical category as you might say the Romans, the Victorians, the, the, the Normans. It's the people who lived in England at a particular time between the end of Roman Britain in the 5th century and the Norman conquest in 1066. However, there are other ways of understanding the term. It has been thought of as one which is more ethnically driven, one which is uh, which implies a degree of superiority, buying into great institutions that the Anglo-Saxons supposedly created. Um, it can also be used in modern times as a, a, a sort of designation of a fundamentally sort of proto-English, ur-English way of looking at life, economy, society. This is this is how it's used in many languages other than English, for example. In French, they talk about les anglo-saxons to mean a particular way of doing things with the economy, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Um we could we could spend another whole other hour talking about, well as I've gone through the you've sent me lots of notes and, and references and I could you could spend a great deal of time I, I presume this is probably for a tutorial essays that you that list of books that you sent me but you could um, spend a lot of time contrasting this I mean we don't get exercised about Roman now I'm half Italian I am about as Roman as you are Rory Naismith um, because I know what happens after the Romans sort of pass away, quote unquote. I know where my people are from in Italy. And, you know, I'm as Roman as an Anglo-Saxon. Um, but does Roman have that, you know, capacity? Does it have a, it has, it, in a weird way, it's never developed that sort of a mm. racial category. We'll be talking a lot mm. about that, mm. that Anglo-Saxon has. Maybe that's part of the, Maybe that's part of the problematic, that is, I think, the chief problematic nature of Anglo-Saxon in yep. t- today's discourse. 
I'd agree with that. Um, I, I certainly couldn't speak for the the Romani of Rome today, but yeah, I think you're right. I think Anglo-Saxon, much more so than than English or German or French or lots of other designations for peoples in their history, Anglo-Saxon has got problematic baggage. And that's because of the way the term has been used uh, for for slightly different purposes, well, slightly different, very different purposes over over the last 500 years. It's meant different things at different times. It's had this really long, really interesting history, but that means it's just picked up a lot of a lot of associations along the way. So where does the term come from? Uh, when I was reading like a, a bootleg ladybird book that someone had imported into the United States, I seem to recall, it must have been a ladybird book, like a map with neat arrows pointing across the North mm-hmm. Sea and the English Channel. Um, after all, you are in Cambridge, the heart of East Anglia. I, it got caught, you know, Angli, not Angli, said Angli, not yes. Angli. It's, you yes. know, there's, it, there's, those angles came from somewhere. Mm. And as I recall, there was a nice neat line from Denmark to East Anglia showing that's where the angles came from. Um, but uh, did medieval people, did anyone at the time refer them to themselves as Anglo-Saxons? You're quite right that you do get these these line, these maps with lines coming from Germany and and Denmark to England. This is because going back to the time of the Venerable Bede, the the theory was that um, people had come from the Saxons, the Angles, and the the Jutes to to different parts of England, and then created kingdoms once they'd arrived. Um, that was already a schematic view of a much more complicated position when Bede wrote it down in the early eighth century. And the term Anglo-Saxon itself was not one that he himself ever used. Um, Bede spoke in terms of the the Angles, the 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 Angli, the uh, the people who lived in Northumbria and the Midlands, middle part, central part of England. Um, Anglo-Saxon itself meant something like English Saxons, as opposed to the continental Saxons. And it first appears being used in that way in about the year 800 and interestingly this happened outside England it's not uh it's not a term the English use on their own it's one that's being used by people like Paul the Deacon in Italy by various others in in the Frankish world but of course they have to deal with the 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 real Saxons the original Saxons so they have to distinguish them from the the Saxons who live in England they do use Anglo-Saxon in England in a specific context for a relatively brief period in the late 9th and the earlier part of the 10th century. Uh, This starts with Alfred the Great, who uh, brings together the kingdom of the West Saxons, the kingdom of Wessex, and the remaining part of the kingdom of the Mercians. And so historically, these have been a Saxon and an Anglian kingdom. So by calling himself the king of the Anglo-Saxons, he's tapping into those two traditions and, and demonstrating that he's now ruler of a, a different sort of entity. That same language carries on being used uh, in, in charters and certain other, other kinds, of, kinds of documentary settings into the earlier part of the 10th century, but it then gradually falls out of favour and English, um, just Angli, Engler in, in Old English, becomes the preferred way of referring to all these people who lived in what would become England. So let me summarize yeah. some, some more of hearing. Sure. Uh, Bede's sure. the first person. Uh, Bede's the first person, the great historian. We always call him the Venerable, even though he was canonized. Uh, but uh, the uh, he's writing this in the early 8th century. So right, in the yes. early yes. 
early 700s. Yeah. Yes. He's writing about events that occurred, what, 200 years before his own life, uh, roughly? More, more like three, 250-odd years, yes, in the 5th century. Okay. And he never uses the term Anglo-Saxon, but Alfred the Great does to show that he has a he has unified the kingdoms of what we now call England, or he's in the process of unifying it. Yes, so that, yes. That's right. Yes. And then Anglo-Saxon is used under Alfred. It's used under Alfred's immediate successors in the early part of the 10th century. But they're already changing the way they think about this kingdom as they go along. So that by the time of Athelstan, sorry, Alfred's grandson, Athelstan, who's the one that brings together the majority of what would become modern England, he starts to call it the kingdom of the English um, so he thinks about it in a different way, and that's, that framework catches on and becomes the standard through the rest of the 10th century and after. So Anglo-Saxon gets gets left by the wayside. What happens with 1066, uh, and which becomes, or we'll talk about this in the sort of the, um, in Whiggish Anglo-Saxonism, which yes. we'll get to and explain what that, mm. what that my, my term, I, mm. I think. Um, will explain that 1066 is a major inflection point. Yeah. It's the declension point. Yes. But does it make a difference to do the Normans who come over and impose themselves and their language and meld it uh, Latin language with German? Are they using the term or do they discard it? Do they, you know, stamp on it? Do they spit, you know, et cetera? Uh, they don't really talk about the Anglo Saxons very much. No, but having said that, <laughs> They are, there is a lot of interest in the Norman conquest, uh, and this kicks off even just a generation or two after it's happened. In, in about 1100, and the decades thereafter, there's a new generation of historians who bring together the laws and the histories of the English from before the conquest, and they've got a very strong sense that there has been this break, and they're trying very hard to build connections that stretch across that break. They're trying to um, bring together and rehabilitate in, in a, la- a language that the Normans can understand, usually in Latin. They're trying to bring all of this material together. So the Norman conquest is really important. It's the kind of Anglo-Saxons in negative. You know, they're really keen on the idea of tracing things back to the conquest, to 1066. And this is something that carries through from the, the immediate aftermath of the conquest itself, right through to the 15th, 16th century, and particularly in the context of things like laws. People are really keen on the idea of being able to trace back laws and legal privileges, at least notionally, to the conquest. And then before the conquest becomes this sort of vague, sort of never-never land for, for anything that's good and ancient. It can be traced back to the conquest, ergo it's something that's coming out of time immemorial. So that's happening even under at the the, the great blossoming of, of of English law and study of law. That's already happening, not just in not just in the seventeenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth century. No, that's right. This is going on in the the twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth century. There's an example in the I think it's in thirteen seventy seven when the whole dozens of villages across southern England band together to try and reclaim what was called the rights of ancient demesne, which meant that it was a an estate that the king had held in ten sixty six and Doomsday Book was checked, and indeed they found that these places had been ancient dominion Doomsday Book, which meant they could claim all sorts of privileges because notionally they'd had this special status before the Norman Conquest. 
we should explain what Doomsday Book is. Yes, we should. So yes, this is a very good I mean, point. Even though, I mean, which seems like this is like the, the, I mean, it's not even an A level question anymore. Mm. It's like, you know, yeah. whatever, it's less than that, but still for a lot of foreign yeah. listeners, that might be. A, no, that's a very, that's, you're absolutely right. Doomsday Book is a survey that was made in England in the year 1086 of all the land that was, was held by, um, well, held by the king and held by people who, who had their land directly from the king. It told you who had that property in 1086 when they made it. And it also told you who held that property on the day King Edward the Confessor was alive and dead um, in January 1066. So this covers tens of thousands of pieces of land, more or less, I wouldn't quite say everywhere. There are some places that don't appear in it, but the large majority of towns and villages in everywhere from Yorkshire down to the south coast in England is covered by Doomsday Book. So it gives you a huge amount of information. And this this survey, which exists in this series of sort of massive, fat 11th century volumes, was already taking on monumental, iconic status in the Middle Ages which is partly why it's called Doomsday Book. You know, people thought it was like the Day of Judgment when people would come down and sort of enumerate everything. And um, yeah, it was already something people would turn to as a, a symbol of how things used to be, how things were a long time ago. Even if you had it's other not- sources that told you something else, Doomsday Book had a, a sort of priority. It had a certain kind of strength to it that other, other documents didn't. And you're saying it's not just a imposition or an expression of Norman rule, which it is, but it's also Normans connecting themselves to the way things were in That's right. 1066 prior yeah. to, prior to their, you know, takeover. That's right. Yes. And what's interesting is that this, this interest in not the Anglo-Saxons as such, but in England before mm. the conquest, it's tied up very much with law. It's tied up with privilege and it's actually not at least after about 1200, it's not such a sort of active historiographical interest. There's not as much historical writing about the Saxons and what happened before the Norman Conquest. It's very much tied up with these questions of how we handle our society, how we reach back in terms of our law, in terms of our privileges. What do we see as the point of origin for those? That's where the conquest and, by implication, the the pre-conquest English, the Anglo-Saxons, retained their relevance as you push through the Middle Ages. So how then does Anglo-Saxonism, for lack of a, or the fascination with Anglo-Saxons, how does that come back into vogue? We're describing this, that it's sort of burbled along in not just, not in legal history, but in legal usage yeah. and in legal thought. Yeah. But then sometime in the late 16th century, it begins to expand. How and why? That's right. Um, partly this is because, well, Anglo-Saxon specifically seems to come back into fashion in a, a, a sort of sudden and dramatic way, probably as a result of the, the editing of a series of texts from the Anglo-Saxon period in the late 16th century, one of those being Asser's Life of Alfred the Great. And this very prominently calls him King of the Anglo-Saxons in the first few lines. So this may well have been one of the the, the points people looked to, one of the sources people looked to for using this new term, which was a nice shorthand for the English before 1066. And already it's being used in that way by this very influential scholar, antiquary, they usually call people who are interested in the past, this character called William Camden, 
um, who, who wrote a sort of historical preface to a survey he, he produced of, of England. And in this, he talked about the, the English Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons. And if you were someone who spoke Latin, you were very conscious that that Anglo bit is basically the same as English. So this is kind of English plus, basically. This is, this is English of an antique kind, but still very much the English. The reasons why they're suddenly so interesting is at this stage, it's, it's due with the Reformation. It's due with trying to reach back to the, the, the Anglo-Saxons as a, a source for how the, the church was in earlier times. So they could try and use precedents from that to explain the way the Church of England as a new Protestant institution wanted to do things. They kind of ignored the fact that it had been very much a, a, a church that respected and was involved with Rome, that that was something they, they didn't want to emphasize. Um, but yes, they were interested in it from an ecclesiastical point of view. There was also a more general revival of interest in antiquity, in the past, in things like languages. There's a strong linguistic element to this revival. They want to learn about Old English. They even make a special typeface for printing these books with Old English in it, so it looks properly archaic. Um, and finally, there's also a maintenance of this, this interest that you saw in that legal dimension where they like the idea of the Anglo-Saxons as the the roots of things like parliaments, of the roots of things like trial by jury and shires and things like that. They they like the idea that that had been something the Anglo-Saxons bequeathed to them. And this was then embraced with more energy and more gusto as you move into the late 16th and 17th centuries. We should talk a little bit more about these antiquarians. Uh, one of my professors used to say they're all very annoying but we wouldn't exist without them. Yes. Um, and which is, uh, and, and these, and you know, if they're, they're providing material, which a lot of their contemporaries like Shakespeare then mm. uh, recycles into great works of literature. Um, I mean, I, I always imagine them getting very excited when they find their village mm. um, is in doomsday book yeah. and they're going around and they're, you know, digging up men and looking for standing stones and uh surveying things um but this is providing the raw material for quote unquote scientific history that, that is that is still to come yes yes that's right and you're, you're absolutely correct there is a strong kind of earthy quality to this they like the idea of going around the landscape and working out what lumps and bumps are and they're interested in place names they're interested in trying to identify where mm-hmm. battles and major places of the past were they made a lot of maps um, yeah, you're, you're quite right. It's to do with there's a strong material element and just interest in the past for the past's sake, or at least notionally for the past's sake. They are instrumentalizing this for, um, like I said, things to do with religious reform and the way the, the kingdom is being run. This is one reason why they, they have a society of antiquaries which gets shut down at one stage by James I because he's worried about the direction in which they are taking things. And this could be seen as undermining the position of, of the monarchy. That's that's a very fast. We should do this whole podcast on that because that's a that's a fascinating moment. Who's ever shut down historians uh, before or since for the? I mean, other than Stalin, of course. But leaving that aside, let's um the this this goes in different ways because, of course, one of the things that also happens with the printing press and with like Holinshed's chronicles is people start to get really interested in the the prehistorical past. One might say. Yeah. I mean, they're going back to talk about King Arthur or Lear, you know, or all the rest of stuff into, into these, uh, imaginary fantastical places of, 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 of old, old Britain. Mm-hmm. So 
in a way, um, Saxon becomes the near past, or Anglo-Saxon England becomes the near past when you're thinking about yeah. King Arthur and and even weirder stuff. <laughs> That's right, and it's Pre- worth Roman em- things. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's worth emphasizing that that the the Anglo-Saxon element in the the history of England was not the only way you could reach back to antiquity. You could look at King Arthur. I mean, one character who was hugely influential in creating that side of the story was Geoffrey of Monmouth, who's a historian in the early part of the 1100s. And he wrote this sort of alternative history of, of the Britons, of Britain, in which King Arthur and a whole series of other British kings were the stars of the show. And the Saxons were really the aggressors, the interlopers, and the Britons uh, definitely the baddies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was still um, something that a lot of people bought into and were very interested in right through into the early modern period. Others looked to the Romans, or they looked to the the Norman conquest in terms of the Normans bringing in uh, a sort of firm tradition of monarchy and of, of land tenure. You could look in different directions, and various characters in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries picked up on these these various strands. The Saxons, I think, became more popular. The Anglo-Saxons became the preferred um, element of antiquity. As you you say, it it becomes a sort of the earliest bit of proximate history, if that makes sense. Um, It becomes accepted as our history, or at least their history. They're very conscious of England as a state, and they want the Anglo-Saxons to be the earliest element in that. And it, so what we're saying is there are, to use that awful term, there are a variety of usable pasts, uh, and alter- alternative usable pasts, and people are sort of sorting through this sort of this bin of usable pasts. And the one that is grabbed most often then uh, is the Anglo-Saxon. And I'm sure that's because of what you're saying. There's already a tradition of using it, not prior to contemplating it. There's a tradition of using it in the law. And so it's the law, it's through the law that we get to Whiggish Anglo-Saxonism, which is, you know, what this, which is a, a tremendous edifice, which is constructed over centuries. And, you know, and the French still think it exists, as you said already. So we should, we should need to spend some time talking about it. We do. That's absolutely right. Yes. And you can see elements of this growing up already in, in the 13th century. You already had some texts then, uh, legal, legal treatises, which said parliament was established by Alfred the Great, or which looked back to, um, sort of precedents of the time of Edward the Confessor. Those were the two, if you wanted to personify the Anglo-Saxons, those were the two figures that we usually look to. Edward the Confessor was more popular in the late Middle Ages. Alfred the Great becomes the, the preferred sort of totem of the Anglo-Saxons from the 16th, 17th century onwards. But more often people would think about it in an impersonal way. It was just the Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons as an undifferentiated whole. And they cover the whole period from the 5th century to the 11th century with that bracket. But yes, you're, you're quite right about Whiggish history being the, the outgrowth of that tradition. It's one that you can see becoming, uh, coming onto the scene in a more, more concrete way as you move through the 17th century. The, the levelers um, in the 1640s were very keen on the idea that the Saxons had, um, representative government and they had, uh, uh, broadly democratic way of doing things and that this had then been subverted by the Normans, the Norman yoke, that Normans had come in and perverted the way the Saxons did things. And that lays the groundwork really for how the Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons played a political role, an institutional role 
as you move through into the real flowering of Whiggish Anglo-Saxonism, radical Anglo-Saxonism, as you move into the 18th century. But it started already with the Civil War. With the, yeah, with that's the, right. The, or the war, the war of four kingdoms, if, if you wish. Um, uh, the or th- if you're Welsh, it's four. Mm. Um, the uh, the levelers have already been mm. holding up Anglo-Saxon liberty. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, um, they've already uh, sort of set that hair running, and you can see that this feeds into a real. Real, real flourishing of Anglo-Saxon research in the late 17th, early 18th century. This is a golden age for people digging up these earlier texts, editing these these old old um, pieces of scholarship, and really coming up with a firmer idea of who the Anglo-Saxons were and why they mattered. Because there is this sense that Anglo-Saxon liberties, Anglo-Saxon institutions, were imagined increasingly as the bedrock of those of the English, um, and in some cases, I thought. Par- of Parliament, yeah, of of the Shire system, yeah, that's right. Of trial by ju- trial by jury, yes, all the good stuff, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Those things and and more besides. These were all thought of as as going back to the Anglo-Saxon period. And one one way of thinking about this just saw a kind of unbroken tradition because since the Normans were thought of as having essentially embraced English law, that William the Conqueror had agreed to the laws there with the Confessor, you didn't really have a break at the Norman conquest. Not everyone subscribed to that. The levellers and others thought instead that the Saxons had got it right, that the Saxons had done things properly, and then the Normans had come along and and things had been derailed. So again, there were a variety of usable paths, and you could emphasise continuity, you could emphasise discontinuity, but the Saxons tended to be at the root of whichever of those tracks you wanted to go down. This is the... This is the, the myth of the Norman yoke, yeah. which you put in all, in, 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 you, you capitalize yoke, and I can't make a pun right now. It's very long. Um, but could you explain that? Because this is, a, it, people in the 18th century discussed this very matter-of-factly as if, yeah. as if any, any, everyone should know about it. That's right. This is, it's, well, the image of it is that you are yoking as in like a plow, you know, you're attaching a yoke onto a, 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 a team of cattle so you can make them do your dirty work and sort of impose your, your will upon them. And this image has got a long, long back history to it. It was already used in the early part of the 12th century by an author called Orderic Vitalis. He, he talks about a, a yoke being put upon the English. And this is then resurrected and used much more widely in this this 16th, 17th century reincarnation of the Anglo-Saxons, which really doesn't actually have that much to do with the the real Anglo-Saxons, as they are now understood by modern scholars. But instead, the the concept of the Anglo-Saxons as a, a kind of sort of institutional garden of Eden for the English, you know, a kind of prelapsarian state of all good things, going back to the Saxons, that is where the Norman yoke comes in. This is a, a shorthand for the perversion of good Anglo-Saxon traditions by the, the Norman incomers from 1066 and after, which was used in particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries. And this goes right down to the thought of my near neighbor, uh, Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. just up the hill behind me. Um, did you describe one of his his alternative designs for the Great Seal of the United States, which yes. now strikes us, and without understanding this context, strikes students as completely mad? 
Yes. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had the idea that the Great Seal of the United States would feature Hengist and Horsa, who were these two um, two chieftains, two leaders, thought to have led one of the first settlements of the, the Jutes, the Anglo-Saxons, to Kent in the 5th century. And the, the thinking here was that they were the establishers of a, a sort of yeoman republic where people had votes and did things in a proto-democratic way. And in Jefferson's mind, that was what America should be. It should be a, a rural farming um, republic. Yeah, and so this is not just uh, for the seal. Um, mm. The attempts in various laws that are being introduced by some of his um, his members of his political cl- uh, clique in 17 Virginia, one of his great proposals is to redefine the entire county system of Virginia. And uh, hitherto, it had been divided into the subunit of a county as a parish. And the vestry of the parish is actually also local government. That's in, in royal, royal Virginia. Um, Jefferson wants to divide it into, instead into hundreds. Yeah. Um, hundreds a term used in William Penn's Pennsylvania and yes. Delaware. There are, instead of township, as in New England, there are hundreds. So Jefferson finds this to be properly Saxon. Yes. Uh, and good. And so this idea of Hengist and Horsa as sort of innovators of local government actually really important to his conception of how to create Republican local government. And so those hun- each of those hundreds in Virginia will have a schoolhouse for you know K through eight uh, or one through eight, and also an armory for a company of militia. So they will be the basic military and educational organization of this, you know, this proud and independent Republican polity. In other words, they'll be just like the Saxons. Yeah, that's right. As as he imagined the Saxons. Yes, that's that's exactly right. And hundreds were these were the basic units of Doomsday Book. Within each each shire, they talk about so and so has lands in this hundred, that hundred, another hundred. Um, there are records of hundreds from legal texts going back into the tenth century. Um, yeah, and in Jefferson's mind, this was the the bedrock of a. a the way the Saxons did things. It probably they probably weren't there initially. This is an example of how the Anglo-Saxon period is undifferentiated. You know, they're only really there clearly in the last hundred or so years of Anglo-Saxon England, but they're thought of as quintessentially Saxon by scholars like Thomas Jefferson hundreds of years later. Yeah, you know, we skipped over some things here because it, this is it, it it's clear the Anglo-Saxons are going to be important. Going back to Sir Edward Coke, going back to this yeah. legal tradition. Yeah. If you're a British American who is, is saying, now hang on a second. We've had parliaments since 1619. Mm. We've had town meetings. We've been doing this for almost, uh, hun- we've been doing this for 150 years. We've been pursuing our, our English liberties. And now Parliament in London saying, what? You can't do that. That's not right. You know, but we're doing what's right. And so therefore we're doing what's, what's validated by antiquity and hence i guess the, the interest in then going back to in in, in the in from 1765 certainly onward hence the interest in going back to saxon traditions saxon legal usages so on yeah that's right and this is something that takes hold uh, very widely in the, the colonies in the course of the 18th century that it's 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 not as prominent if you go way back into the 17th century it, it's a facet really of thinking more about the colonies 
as part of a, an, an English or British world. You know, they're in closer dialogue with what's happening in Britain, and this means they're more conscious of their supposedly Anglo-Saxon roots, their Anglo-Saxon heritage, which included all of these things like Parliament and trial by jury and all these other things we've talked about. There's, there's an even stronger sense, arguably, of this in the colonies than there was in England itself, or at least as strong, and it's inflected in a, a, a different sort of way. I think, it, I mean, just as there's a stronger sense of, um, right up until 1776, there's a stronger sense of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, supposedly more pictures of the of George the Third are exported or sent to the colonies than are sold in in Britain itself, in, mm-hmm. in England, and in, in Scotland proper. Um, just there's more of a sense of what does it mean to be British yeah. in the colonies, which is going at full tilt, and then runs into the revolutionary movement. Yes. Actually, becomes the revolutionary movement in some ways. Yeah, um, you you mentioned one word which I had to look up. Uh, one uh, name, uh, pseudonym, I hope, Demophilus. Could you yes, uh, the thought of Demophilus. That's right. Demophilus was. Um, this is the the pseudonym of one author of a of a pamphlet called "The Genuine Principles of the Ancient Saxon or English Constitution" from Pennsylvania um, in the 1770s. And this is one of many pamphlets which tries to grasp very explicitly and consciously Anglo-Saxon precedents, Anglo-Saxon heritage for reform of the way representative government was handled in the colonies in the 1760s and 1770s. This was one of the ways in which people justified big change was by claiming it wasn't actually a big change. It was going back to how things once had been and restoring proper, you know, true truth, justice in the Anglo-Saxon way, basically. Burning the Anglo, the Norman yoke. Yes, exactly. Um, Getting rid of the Norman yoke and going back to basics. Yeah. So Jefferson's such a, a fascinating figure for so many in so many ways, um, uh, and in he's also a transitional figure. Mm. But um, we should talk about another transitional figure before we, before we get to racial Anglo-Saxon, mm. which is I, I said we need to talk about Sir Walter Scott. Yes. We need to talk about Ivanhoe because yes. that is certainly how most people take their Whiggish Anglo-Saxonism in the early nineteenth century is by reading Scott yeah. and getting his ideas. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that Walter Scott with, with Ivanhoe, this early 19th century novel, it's uh, it's hugely influential. It popularizes this notion of the Anglo-Saxons as, um, well, as the good guys, basically, that the Normans are the invaders, they're imposing their yoke, they're, they're, they're uh, perverting the way the English had done things before. Whereas uh, Wilfred of Ivanhoe and, and his family and the other Saxon heroes who come up in Ivanhoe, they're, you know, they're tall, they're blonde, they're blue-eyed, they they want to help people and make things better and have all of those good virtuous institutions that we've been talking about, that Walter Scott establishes this and democratizes this really because of the, the massive popularity that he enjoyed at this stage in Britain and America and elsewhere. He's embedding this in a way that, that scholarly discourse simply couldn't do. I, I mean, Scott is, as always, interested in the decline of a previous culture. It's a whole mm. point. I mean, this is what he feels he's grown up seeing, um, the, 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 the decline of, of the transformation of Scottishness uh, and what it means to be a, a Highlander or a Lowlander and all the rest of that stuff. And, you know, he's an antiquarian, too. He wants to preserve songs, poems, 
traditions and that sort of stuff, invent them if necessary, but he also preserved them. Um, mm. So uh, the and that that's the whole point of Rob Roy yep. is to see that that passing of an age, yes, um, the passing of a, an age of chieftains, yep. uh, almost pre-feudal, uh, jumping right over the Middle Ages, kind of into the commercial age. And likewise, in Ivanhoe, there's going to be that sense as well. I mean, because he's um, because he's an artist, there's nuance to it. Um, Cedric the Saxon, Wilfred's uh, fa- uh, father, is a bit comic in his in his rages and his angers. Yes. His his uh, the true Sax king, the true Saxon king of England, is a is a drunk. Um, he's a comic figure. So there's something there's something comic about it. And Richard Richard is you know. Wilfred has followed Richard. Richard is great. He's yes. a lionheart. Yes. Um, and so there's, there's that sort of side to it. So all those st- stipulating that everything you said is true. There's also oh, yeah. something, yeah. another different way of looking at oh, it. Oh, you're absolutely right, Al. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's certainly not simple and straightforward. And there is a sense that the Saxons have got a kind of primitive virtue about them. You know, that's the, the kind of mindset that you can see here that they're, they're Jesus. almost like our noble savages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sort of like the Highlanders Ooh, traditionally. Yeah. And, you know, in the British Army. Um, so yeah, and they, and they, and they have, to use a Norman word, they have a naivete. Um, they, um, they're blunt and open and honest, but, you know, sometimes a little just, you know, naive. Um, need some French to, you know, to exactly. Yeah. To smarten like, them up a bit. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Whip them into shape. Yes. And of course, uh, Ivanhoe is set over a hundred years after the Norman Conquest, so it's really a bit of a bit of a conceit to have a, a notion of a sharp mm-hmm. distinction between Normans and English, Normans and Saxons by that point. That on the ground in England in the the late twelfth century, that that wasn't quite the way things were done. I, you can see this running forward. I, I um, it's I think it's none other than Charles Kingsley, uh, the Christian socialist, uh, uh, who writes Hervard the Wake, mm. which is a that's taking forward, I think, um, some of these ideas, those ideas of, of Whiggish Anglo-Saxonism, yeah. you know, giving them a little Christian socialist tinge. Mm. But here is a, a genuine, you know, the Che Guevara of the Fens. <laughs> uh, uh, great. The, you know, the, exactly. I mean, he's fighting against the Norman yoke. He's resisting. He's a genuine English hero. Mm. And so this, I mean, I, I think I read kids' books in like the late 20th century, probably printed in the mid 20th century, but in which there are like, you know, Anglo-Saxon, I mean, Robin Hood mm. in, in Walter Scott, they take that idea forward. Yep. as an Anglo-Saxon resistor mm. to the Norman yoke. Yeah. And Alfred the Great, you know, I mentioned him before as one of the yeah. kind of figureheads for this, but there's a whole mythology that grows up around Alfred. There's a story of him, you know, dressing up as a minstrel to go out and sort of get intelligence from the Danes. He he burns his cakes because he's too focused on what he's going to do to save the kingdom. And there are more uh, more more biographies, more books about Alfred the Great, more popular books about Alfred the Great than you could shake a spear at. You know, he's, he's massively popular. There are statues of him everywhere. There's a university with his name in, in the States. There's a huge number of legacies of Alfred as a kind of personification of these good qualities that were associated with the Anglo-Saxon era. I mean, after, he is the only English king 
Oh, the Great, isn't he? I, I think mean, he uh, is, yes. Yes. Uh, the only English monarch. Right? That's right. King Canute's son is called the Great, but mostly outside England. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, mostly in Denmark, probably. Yeah. So uh, let's go to the back to Jefferson and to mm. the, you, you noted that the, uh, the Saxons in Ivanhoe are blonde and blue-eyed. And this brings us to racial Anglo-Saxonism. Now, Jefferson's a racist because he considers himself a scientist and he's reading the new biology. And he begins to think about along the lines of racial categories. Um, I can't immediately, in, I can certainly his ideas of Anglo-Saxonism were taken up by people who are properly racial Anglo-Saxon, I, uh, are racist Anglo-Saxons. Mm. I don't think he went that far. Uh, if he, no. maybe if he had lived another 20 years, mm. uh, he would have, but, um, but that certainly is happening in, by the end of his life. This has been taken up with a vengeance. That's right. Yes, this is this is emerging from um, you know Blumenbach and others in the 1780s across the late 18th century. There is growing interest in the the scientific study of race among humans and the idea that the Anglo Saxons are a particular group, even within the what they call the Caucasian sort of white race. That they were a, a special great group even within that subset this is something that really only picks up as you move into the well towards the end of jefferson's life the sort of 1830s 40s 50s that's when the idea of the anglo-saxons as a, a race usually a superior race is one that you can see coming online yeah yeah it's very interesting in southerners that that time are much more interested in being anglo-saxon uh for the last hundred years they've been interested in being scots irish yeah that was not emphasized at the time yeah. Uh, and yeah. they were much more interested in, in tracing themselves back to sort of the primitive, the primitive racial virtues of the Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. yeah. And it's worth stressing that um, an awful lot of people who, who like to emphasize their Anglo-Saxon credentials uh, were not of Anglo-Saxon. I mean, it's, it's, it shouldn't need to be said, but it's worth emphasizing. This is, this is all a myth. This is something that's been 100% discredited many times over since, but yet it was a powerful, rhetorical, ideological tool in the, the 19th and early 20th centuries. And um, you have people like, um, say, Theodore Roosevelt. You know, even his name should be a strong indication you're not dealing with someone who is necessarily going to be thinking of himself as an Anglo-Saxon. And yet he bought into, in a lot of, a lot of, a lot of contexts, Anglo-Saxon ideology and mythology. Um, this was something that people started to use to try to emphasize their superiority. Mm-hmm. And to find the, uh, to find it, it goes in various different ways, doesn't it? I mean, it, yeah. it is to keep, um, it is to keep uh, a certain, and this is where it gets difficult for in modern racial categories, yeah. because, uh, we, this is then immediately seen as white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that's true as long as you consider, uh, that I am not white. So I am half Italian, my last name, yeah. and I'm also half sort of, uh, North German. Mm. Oddly enough, Germans, uh, but some of the supporters of Anglo-Saxonism, Germans were a little bit on the outside. I mean, yeah. they're a bunch of square heads, a little dirty. Uh, we're not quite bright, you know, and the Italian, of course, is completely out. I mean, it's obviously not white at all. Uh, <laughs> superstitious, worthy, uh, musical, um, strange smell, eat garlic. You know, these are, these are things that disqualify you from being properly Anglo-Saxon. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, and there are other places where this this whole discourse takes a slightly weird turn. So Scotland, you know, my, my most of my family comes from from Scotland, and there um, there was a lot of interest in trying to decide on whether the the Scots and the Picts were Celtic or, or Germanic. The idea being that if they were Scythian, as as some medieval text said, then they were of the same sort of distantly. Um, Supposedly Germanic stock as the as the Anglo Saxons, ergo the Scots and the Picts could be seen as part of that same that same cultural cultural grouping. That's all, um, that's all, that's all right then. That's exactly, this is a way of trying yeah. to integrate the Scots into the kind of Anglo Saxon family, the Anglo Saxon worldview, or not, depending on which side you want to take in that debate. Yeah, yeah, and it's what's also interesting is you put in your notes, and, and I've seen this. Um, the various like English speaking leagues and Anglo American friendship mm-hmm. leagues around the 1880s, 1890s, well, there are cert- certainly some somewhat benign reasons for them. And certainly with the rise of Imperial Germany, they began to have a, a, a very transatlantic political uh, reason for existence. Mm-hmm. But they, so many of them come out of, they, they want to base that on not, um, Shared institutions, mm. shared political ideals, yeah. but instead they have to come up with a racial foundation. It's yeah, really right. important that they have a biological foundation for modern political action. Yeah, it's almost like they've they've reversed the equation that they the the Anglo-Saxons yeah. were once thought as having been great because they built these great institutions. Now the idea is that the institutions were great because they were built by even greater Anglo-Saxons who were kind of <laughs> right. biologically predestined for greatness. That's the that's the equation seems to be going on. Yeah, that's absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the twentieth century. Um, this uh, it's difficult to continue to talk about the Anglo Saxons when you have lots of Irish and Italian politicians in the United States. Um, yes. What do? But I, I don't know the usage in England. Did did was Anglo Saxon used much? I um, mean, and when did it fall out of favor? Uh, well, in in England, it, it is still there, in, and it is still used popularly into about the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, when the emphasis starts to become more on British and the particularly the white British, which tried to bring together not just those who were in Britain itself, but also in the the dominions of the empire, so Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Um, there was more sense of those groups coming together through a shared sense of Britishness that was centred on Britain itself, but not exclusive to Britain. Um, and the Anglo-Saxons, the idea that it's in some sense just the English, it, it falls by the wayside again for that same reason. It never goes away. Um, it is still used. But as in America, as in the US, you can see that its, its popular incarnation is gradually losing out to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I should. Um, where did scholarly discourse go on Anglo-Saxon? Um, we, we started talking about who they were, but yes. what's interesting to me about the current debate that in which you participate, and there's increasingly there's an idea, the sort of censoriousness of the modern academic. We really want to give Bead a good talking to. Yeah. I mean, what the hell did you know about invasions? And now it's. Uh, just as the uh, the Vikings, well, another, another term imposed upon people who didn't use it, um, but uh, just as the Vikings have become innocent traders and mm-hmm. uh, you know cultural ambassadors mm-hmm. uh, for IKEA, perhaps uh, bringing the Swedish meatballs and, and prefabricated furniture, 
to ports throughout Western Europe and the Mediterranean. Uh, so likewise, Anglo-Saxons are just a sort of gentle communes of people yeah. coming across into southern England, perhaps, maybe, who knows? Uh, it's uh, setting, up, all, setting, up, setting up, a, setting up agrarian communities of, of peace and understanding. There are some who would who would say that. I think probably people would still accept a degree of violence and unpleasantness in in the 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 what used to be called the Anglo the, the 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 processes formerly known as the Anglo-Saxon settlements. Um, but what uh, what I think has has changed is in the, the post-war period there was a gradual realization among scholars that um, the the Anglo-Saxon settlements as the idea of a mass of people coming in and either depopulating what had they what they found right. like getting rid of the Britons or indeed finding it just empty that the Britons were already gone. That was gradually diluted and eventually really left behind. I don't think there's really anyone now who'd argue that the Anglo Saxons completely come in and repopulate an area that had been just just evacuated completely. There is some continuity of population. At the same time there is clearly some incoming some migration of people from northern mainland Europe, there's a lot of variation on where people would sit on on the extremes of that scale. Some would see a lot of migration, some would see less migration and more continuity. Um, and within that, it became clear, of course, you couldn't think of the Anglo-Saxons in those racial terms anymore. Having said that, mm. it stuck, especially in British usage, as a, a historical label. So this is what I, what I said at the very beginning of our talk, that Anglo-Saxon now in Britain is generally understood in historical terms. You don't necessarily think of the Anglo-Saxons as our ancestors, the Anglo-Saxons. You know, it's not got that same ethnic, biological quality to it. There are extremist groups who certainly do still buy into that and some older bits of literature about, about that propagate that view. But on the whole, Anglo-Saxons are understood as the people who lived in England during that period. Um, and that's the usage which gradually emerged as you move through the, particularly the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s in Britain. So the term is still there, but it's been gradually neutered um, in British usage of a lot of that that racial baggage that it built up in the 19th century. Yeah, I, it. Um, should we continue to use it? I mean, that's certainly the way no. when I was in grad school. Was, yes. I mean, that was like, what else am I going to call them? Precisely. Um, this is, this is, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a, just a, it's just sort of a post-it note that you slap on this period and these people yeah. who are really complex and genetic archaeology is wonderful, but I don't think it will ever be that good to like, and why, and then it starts to get kind of weird, racially weird too. Do I want to just put them all into separate, you know, Germanic yeah. ethnic categories and yeah. to give them precise names? I mean, yeah. Well, and Germanic is another term that's been challenged and deconstructed on those same grounds. Yeah, or, or Viking, you mentioned earlier, that these are, I mean, there's no denying it, these are convenient labels, but we, we have to recognize that it's emphatically not what people used at the time. It's not the language that was used in the the 8th century. We've not really got any idea what they called themselves in the 5th and 6th centuries. It certainly wouldn't have been Anglo-Saxons. This is one of the risks that you're... you're exporting back into a period this this terminology from much later and if you're coming from a, a, a sort of mainstream british tradition you can look very naive because i think in america in north american usage anglo-saxon has kind of been fossilized with the associations it had when it dropped out of mainstream usage. in other words it still smacks of uh 
a distasteful and archaic era of racism, which is less true, much less true, I think, in, in British um, contexts. And so now that we're in a, a much more connected world where people are all on, on, on Twitter and Facebook talking to each other in a, a way that wasn't really possible 30 or 40 years ago, Talking. Indeed, yes. With, with air quotes. Yes, uh, shouting in full caps at each other. Um, you realize yes, that right. there is this, this very different usage in, across, across the other side of the Atlantic or indeed in other parts of the world too. Um, and so this is part of the reason it's become such a live debate in recent years that there's, there's two, you know, it's two, what is it? Uh, two countries separated by a common language, you know, that, that old adage about Britain and America and, that a historical dimension of that is is coming to the fore. Well, it's, it's very interesting because, of course, when I was in doing a medieval studies MA, I yep. mean, this is and uh, and or doing a Carolingian history as an undergraduate. Of course, this is how I I never even don't think I, I was so naive. I never even knew about the ethnic Anglo-Saxon definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, other than as someone named Zambo, and I didn't like it if I if I if I had yeah. found out about it. So to, to, but now as a historian of the American South, this is, of course, very much at the heart of, of, uh, a lot of our current, uh, struggles in communicating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I personally do still use the term Anglo-Saxon, but I try to make it very clear that it's being used in that historical context. And I think it's, it's, to my mind, it's important to claim these terms for well, for, for better usage, that you need to make it clear that it's ha- it's got this problematic history, that it has been used in really horrific, deeply offensive racial ways and is still used in that way in many quarters. But it is at the same time a term that does go back to the 9th and 10th centuries. And it's a term that is so deeply associated with the period as a kind of totem that if you let it be claimed by the the extreme right and be claimed as a term that is only associated with racism. I think that says something very unfortunate about this part of the period. I think what we need to try and do is reclaim Anglo-Saxon, as it were, reclaim Anglo-Saxon as a term that is just used with a lot of caveats to mean early medi- the, the English in the earlier Middle Ages. Well, my guest today has been Rory Naismith. Rory, thanks again for being, once again, more being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 